Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Well, here we are at another The Sword and the Trowel. That's right. Have we, done, have we done two years worth yet? What number is this? 732? Almost 100? Is it feels like we just started to me. Does it? Sometimes. It feels like we've been doing this <laughs> since I was a little boy. Um, so today we want to get into a number of things. We really just want to kind of talk about more of the faulty religion that we see afoot in yeah. America and try to highlight it and then try to provide some solutions. But before we do, we want to let you know that we have a conference coming up, Founders Con 2021, January 21st through the 23rd on the doctrine of God. Founders Con. Founders Con. It's like Comic Con. Founders Con. Yeah. Well, I don't think Comic Con are the only ones that do that. I think a lot of people do that with Con. What they are short, the other They shorten conference just like, to Con. Uh, what are the cons? I don't know. Sci- sci-fi Con? I don't go to a lot of conferences. <laughs> <laughs> you just put them on here. It's going to be a great conference. We got um, Chad Vegas coming, Jim Dolezal coming, uh-huh. Doctorate of God. Um, Dolezal's book has been wonderful yep. in that so uh, you can register online at founders.org and we encourage you to come southwest florida january can't beat it is wonderful it's very nice i've been thinking about the doctrine got a lot um with what's going on in the world today i was reading going back through calvin's institutes right the, the knowledge of god knowledge of self there is a corruption of our knowledge of ourselves right now we're seeing mm-hmm. that in every direction and the only way to come to an accurate knowledge of oneself is to know the god who is and so yep. even how there's a redefinition of god going on and so yes the, the book. That's right. I just this, this book just happened to pop up here. Here it is because it addresses a lot of that in this book. This is a book Jared edited, and man, is it timely! Mm. Uh, he had the foresight to recognize that a lot of the things that we have been teaching in conferences and things we published need to be collected under a, a theme, and so that's what we, we did. What he did in this book by what standard? It's got contributions by myself, Vody Balkum. Vody's got three chapters in here. If you loved his talks on ethnic Gnosticism and racial reconciliation and cultural Marxism, well, now you can have them in print in this book. Uh, uh, Timon Klein, or Timon Klein, has. Uh, uh, a wonderful treatment of social, just, social justice in light of biblical anthropology, mm-hmm. and it's masterful. I encourage you to, uh, re- well, all of the chapters in here. Jared's got uh, one or two chapters in here. Is that, I got two chapters two in chapters, there. Yeah, yeah, Klein's chapter is great. I mean, he's got a gazillion footnotes. The footnotes and so if you are want, gold. I know, if you want leads on all the social justice, critical, critical theory stuff that's going on, yeah. uh, you're going to find all that in his footnotes. Yeah, so, so get this book. It's on sale. We we actually had it on sale in a pre-pub sale till uh, the middle of this month, July 2020, but the, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, we're looking pretty closely at, at a second printing now because of the uh, response before this even got in our hands. It's just gotten into our hands, and we're just beginning to ship them out uh, over the last few days. And it looks like we're going to have to go into a second printing, which if we do that, it's going to delay uh, having them readily available. So we get a copy now. Um, you won't regret it. We we highly commend this book. And I, for, I think it's $11. So it's that's almost not quite half off, but it's uh, a deep discount if you order it now. So go to founders.org and look in the bookstore and you can get this book at a special price. One of the things, let's get into it. One of the things we've been saying for a while now is that there is, uh, we call it a new worldview, new religion. Uh, many Christians are, you just came back from Missouri mm-hmm. and we're getting this, but we, we get it a lot. Many Christians are saying, what in the world's going on? Right. It doesn't feel like this is just a normal political moment. And we all know November 2020 is coming up. And so it's always crazy in a, in a um, in an election year, but it's not, it's not normally this crazy. We have to be willing to say, okay, there's some continuity, but there's a lot of discontinuity. We have um, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of legislation. And one of my concerns is that if Christians think, well, this is just political stuff and, um, and they maybe downplay the sincerity of what's going on in the social justice movement. And Mm -hmm. even this, this kind of pagan way that people are thinking and legislating, then they're not going to be able to navigate this moment correctly. So we really are dealing with people that are very sincere, that are very passionate about what they're doing. Uh, So even just a minute ago when we were talking about this, I was saying social justice is, is, 
very clear on their understanding of law sure. and maybe even clear Ethics, on their understanding yeah. of gospel. They're very committed to these things and they have a plan for the world. They want to see things happen. Uh, they want to see things change and all of that kind of impulse. Uh, Christianity has as well, uh, but sometimes we're not as serious about those things, even as the social justice movement is. Yeah, and, and you're right. This is not just a political movement, but the other side of this is an error in assessment as well. If you think this is just a theological movement, it is a theological movement. It is a political movement. Now, I've heard it said like this, and I, I think it's accurate. This is a political movement that is draped in theological jargon. And I would go ahead and, and maybe assess it a little more deeply than that, that yes, it is inherently theological. Why? Because all of life is theological. And so you don't get away from God. You don't get away from being religious. Uh, man has been created in the image of God and is going to worship something or someone. So what we're seeing with this rise of the new religion is uh, deeply held convictions about the nature of the world, the nature of any kind of uh, existence beyond themselves, the nature of humanity. Mm. And as you said, ethics, justice, love, mercy, uh, what ought to be in relationships. I mean, all of those things are being put on display in the rioting, in the protesting, in the calls for the deconstruction of our society. So, yeah, it's political. And, and the goal is, I mean, I'm not making this up. People say, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. No, I believe in conspiratorial facts. And the facts that are very evident that by their own mouths are being articulated is that America must go, this civilization must go, the Christianity that is oftentimes, in order to, to get the argument further down the field, is draped in white Christianity, white Jesus, white theology, because if you say that, well, then you put people back on their heels. Oh, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a racist. All that's got to be overthrown so that we can have something that is legitimate in its place. So that's risen up in the culture from ideologies that have been at play now for decades. And what we're seeing in our churches, even good evangelical churches, is they're being manipulated and drawn into it in, mm -hmm. in two main ways. One, either by becoming complicit and saying, yes, yes, we've got to do this. How, how wrong we have been about everything. And this is a horrible nation. This nation was birthed in, in uh, irredeemable sin. And we should lament that. And what, what is being said over here, we need to sit down and listen to it. Or by those who just say, you know, I don't understand this, but I'm just going to be quiet. Well, I, our contention is brothers, pastors especially, the time for silence is gone. Mm -hmm. we, we've got to speak. We've got to be willing to speak boldly, clearly, unapologetically, lovingly what God says in his word. And that's not merely, you know, we're not merely speaking in order to, you know, save the nation or something. We're speaking because there is, there are false teachers that are advancing truths that will lead people to hell. Absolutely. So, so I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, that secularism in, in a sense is, is dead. It's dying. It can't sustain a civilization. You've got like Christianity has teeth and we've seen throughout church history, how as a, as a society adopts Christian principles, there's a flourishing of that particular culture. And then Islam also has some teeth. Mm -hmm. You know, it has the ability to sustain some kind of civic life, um, not in the way that Christianity does, but nevertheless it does. And then the secularism, it really does, and it kind of falls flat. And I've, I totally see that and buy that. But recently I've been interested in seeing how the, the social justice movement and kind of critical theory and how that's all working is almost like a, a hardening of secularism, where secularism mm -hmm. is starting to get some teeth. I yeah, think secularism teeth. in in the and when we're, we're I think really we're just seeing this, you know, even the last decade or so, like where this secularism as an idea has now taken on some just um, anarchy, rebellion, whatever it is. It's it's starting to happen. So helping Christians see that is huge because I still I still think um, you know I've used this illustration. I've got if you've got a Jehovah Witness who lives next door. And you're a Christian. Your Christian brothers and sisters are going to have no problem with you going to the Jehovah Witness and saying, hey, you know, what you do, what you believe is wrong. And your worship is wrong. And Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. They will have no problem with you doing that. Um, but if you have, like, an LGBTQ couple next door flying the rainbow flag, right, um, and you go and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, 
what you're committed mm-hmm. to is wrong, what you believe is wrong. Christians are like, no, 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 you can't do that. So a lot of good Christians think that way. Right. And so what I'm starting to see is they, they see that Jehovah Witness is a faulty religion, but they don't believe that the LGBTQ or the Black Lives Matter um, committed or the social justice warrior or whatever it might be, kind of some leftist mm-hmm. political ideology, they don't see it as an actual faith commitment, as an right. actual religious impulse that is in error that's going to lead people to hell. Yeah. And so... I'm going to read just a paragraph from the introduction of By What Standard. It's actually one I wrote, which feels a little weird. So it's like story time with with Pastor Jared here. I'm going to read a little. Tell us what you said, Jared. This is what I read. Cape Coral 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to read this, and then I want you to tie in. You tie in the governor says you can't sing in Mm -hmm. California, and then the tearing down of statues. So um, here I write, uh, many have failed to see that a false religion is afoot. This false religion is the same one God gave people up to in Romans 1. We have turned from worshiping the creator to worshiping the creature. This religious system teaches that man is God and that the human will is the holy standard. Salvation masquerades as that future state of universal equality attained by strict adherence to the Hegelian dialectic. But in reality, it consists of satiating the unrestricted human appetite by any means necessary. So we do not leap upon altars crying out to bail to send fire while cutting ourselves. But we do leap up on cars as we riot in fiery streets, cutting down people's livelihoods while crying out to finite governmental gods. We do not sacrifice our children to Moloch, but we do sacrifice them to planned parenthood. It's my attempt to start to chart how we really are committed to a faulty religion. We've tried to point this out a number of times. How does that relate to what uh, the governor out in California just did? Yeah, well, it, uh, it, first of all, before we get to the governor, I mean, it, it highlights, yeah, secularism as it is now being very fruitful does indeed have teeth. I mean, just read Lord of the Flies. You want to see where this is going. Mm. I mean, that's exactly where it's going. Orwell was right in, in that, 1984. I, it's crazy. The, the, those books are dystopian, but they're prophetic, and we are now living in them. So Governor Newsom, in early July, maybe July 1 or 2, something like that, uh, rescinded restaurants opening and then issued this uh, governmental uh, uh, order that churches couldn't sing or chant when they gathered. And, you know, he, I'm sure he felt uh, he was being very gracious because you can still go to your house of worship. You just can't sing or chant. Now, what's going on there? Okay, here is the governor. He's concerned about this virus. And, um, you know, perhaps he genuinely believes all of the worst-case scenarios that have been uh, set forth and looking at some evidence of people dying, people getting sick, and all of those things. This virus spreads. And Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He is doing what he believes is best for his state. And so he's telling Christians, you can still worship, but you can't sing or chant in worship. What's going on there? A governmental authority is telling Christians what they can and cannot do in worship. They can still gather, but you just can't sing. Well, what, what's the typical response? I've had this happen to me twice uh, in the last week by people from California, pastors in California, saying, you know, well, of course, Romans 13. Romans 13, the government said it, says it, we got to do it, which is a, that's a whole other debate and, and uh, issue that we ought to get into about what is the greatest authority in America. What is the magistrate, the highest magistrate in America? It's not a person, it's a document. It's the Constitution. But when the governor begins to dictate where what the church can and cannot do, those of us who believe the Bible have got to come back and say, wait a minute, we already have dictates on what we can and cannot do in worship. And those dictates are found in Scripture. In fact, those of us who come out of a, a confessional, Protestant Reform confessional background, we argue for the regulative principle in worship. We're not free to do whatever we want to do in worship anyhow. We, we have a book, and God has spoken. The second commandment tells us he takes very seriously how he is approached in worship. And we see that in uh, the practice of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, when the church was gathered in worship, God killed people. And we, God cares about his worship. He killed Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament because they offered up strange fire, contrary to what he had prescribed. Mm-hmm. So we have a prescription. And if the governor says, yeah, I know, but 
you just can't do this. What's happening is he is getting out of his lane. He has been called upon by God as a civil magistrate to operate in a way that promotes what is right and good and punishes what is evil. And for him, in a situation like this, that you know, if he'd have done this back in February when it says, oh no, this, this novel virus is coming, it's, it's a pandemic, we have got to close everything down. Well, I mean, we did for two weeks. Our church closed down because everybody was not sure what was going on. But in light, two million people were going to die. Yeah, two million people are going to die if we don't do this. And so now, then, you know, we've got it. And again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I can read, and the statistics are crazy low, crazy low for deaths. And the fact that they're so crazy low has caused the media now to focus not on deaths anymore, but on number of infections have been discovered by tests, which the tests have multiplied astronomically. So, of course, the number is going to go up. But nevertheless, this governor, under the guise of trying to protect the citizens and promote health, has told churches you can't sing. So churches now are faced in California. I mean, this is as clear as I know how to make it. You're, you're faced with God says that you're to sing to one another. You mm-hmm. admonish one another with singing. You're to sing praise to the Lord. You're to sing a new song to the Lord. Which there's lots of commands in Scripture for God's people to sing. And the governor said, you must not sing. So who are you going to obey? Who are you going to serve? God or the governor? I know. That's it. It's just like not whether but which situation again. You know, It's, it's not whether you're going to have faith, but which kind of faith are you going to have? Are you going to have the, the Christian faith? Are you going to have faith in God? Or are you going to have the secular faith, which is kind of faith in whatever data we recently produced and then mm-hmm. operating accordingly? In First Samuel 23, you've got Saul chasing David, trying to kill him. And uh, throughout that chapter, David continues to inquire of the Lord. So David finds out that, you know, there's some Philistines that are attacking uh, Kila city in, um, in Israel. And he says, God, should I go and fight him? And God says, yeah, go fight him. And then Saul comes after him. And, you know, Saul doesn't inquire of the Lord, but gets data and information. And David says, well, you know, God, should I flee? And he says, yes, flee. So he flees. And he goes to Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph. The Ziphites go to Saul and say, hey, he's with us. And it's fascinating. Saul says, I've heard he's sneaky. Okay. And and go get me sure information. You know, go and inquire diligently. Get me sure information. And then come, you know, and tell me. Make more sure, is quote the text, and sure information. And so, again, Saul doesn't inquire of the Lord. But he goes after David. He runs after him. Uh, David flees and escapes. Mm-hmm. So what you have is Saul not dealing with the God who exists, living in God's world, but not dealing with that, but being very diligent about, I want sure information, which there's nothing wrong with trying to get sure. good data. But the problem is he is no longer inquiring. He has faith in himself. He has faith in what comes, and he's making bad decisions. So he, he gets some data about where he is. He takes a bad course of action. Uh, Saul actually says in that text, uh, now that David has gone into this particular city, God has given him into my hand because he shut him in with gates and bars. And yet that's not really what happened. It appears to be what happened. And I'm sitting there watching all that. And I'm thinking how many, you know, it's like, here's Saul with his COVID maps. Here's Saul with his COVID predictions. I'm not dealing with God, not praying, not thinking about what he's revealed in his word and how I should operate. But clearly because of the data we have here, we can't sing in California. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be loving to sing in California. And you're stuck in these positions. If you're the church, what are you going to do? You're going to say, yeah, that's the most loving. And what I want to tell people is all the churches, we've got friends out there that have said, hey, I'm going to sing. And if I die from singing and catching COVID, you just tell everybody that I'd rather sing and die than live and not sing. That's right. And and it's crazy, too, because we got to hold our civil leaders accountable. So Gavin Newsom has been very outspoken in how the protests are all justified. And of course, you have a right to be angry. You have a right to express your anger the way you've done it. He's he's not policing the chanting and the screaming that goes on in protest. It's doing this inside the church. And so again, I I just Why is that? Because he's got a he's got a, a, a religious conviction. He's got this understanding, oh, yeah, this is right, this is just, this is proper, this is ethical, according to my system. 
but the church, eh, you know, it's not even essential. So you guys over there, you're just, you're, uh, it's convenient to make you the scapegoat, but I'm going to show how virtuous I am because I care about people. I don't want you singing because the virus spreads through uh, your, uh, what comes out of your mouth, your nose. But uh, you know, think about Christians in history, man. I mean, Caesar, you, you cannot worship anybody but Caesar. Okay, Romans 13, you know, we're just not going to do it. You, you, you can't meet, you can't meet the Conventicle Act in, in the 17th century in England. Oh, okay, we'll stop. No! I mean, we look back on these people, we stand on their shoulders, we praise God for their faith, mm-hmm. and they went to their deaths. They were murdered, they were, they were burned, they were hung, they were drowned because they would rather honor God than people, right. even magisterial people. And sometimes we look back on those stories and we think, well, you know, everyone knew that the Christians had the high moral ground and these were just the real devilish people that were, but that's not the way it works. The people are going to grab that moral high ground or they're going to try to grab it. That's why um, they made some of the martyrs cry out death to the atheist. All they had to Mm -hmm. do, all you had to do was say death to the atheists. And guess who the atheists were? The Christians, mm-hmm. according to sure. the pagan worldview, you Christians are atheists because you won't worship, worship the them. emperor. Yeah. And so all you have to do is yell death to the atheists. Who was it? Was it my, my history's bad now? Polycarp or um, one of the early martyrs, you know, was there and they were saying, all you got to do is say death to the atheists. And he looks around the dome and he says death to the atheists <laughs> points to all of them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, how bombastic of him, you know, yeah. how this is the way modern people think we look back. So they're going to say that you're doing unloving things. Yeah. That's what, these are inevitable conflicts that are coming. They're going to say that you're doing injustice. Let's, let's try to highlight a little bit more with the um, statues. So, so statues coming down and then we're in Southern Baptist theological seminary. There's been uh, a movement recently to get, uh, is it, is it to get James P. Boyce? No, it's Broadus. Broadus is going down because the gavel's removed. Yeah, J.D. Yeah, Greer yeah. said we're not going to use the uh, Broadus gavel. racist gavel. So we're not using that gavel anymore. We're potentially going to use uh, a woman's gavel, Annie Armstrong, yeah. I think. And But th- then there's also been talks about getting Boyce removed from yeah, yeah, the yeah. library. Yeah, from- well, yeah. I mean, Dwight McKissick wrote an open letter. I mean, this has been noised abroad in different ways, but Dwight did it uh, on steroids yesterday or the day before when it should be about a week, I guess, from when this drops, but uh, an open letter to Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary and the trustees of Southern Seminary saying, remove the racist white supremacist memorials of the racists and white supremacists who founded this seminary. And he specifically mentions James Boyce, John Broadus, William Williams, and Basil Manley, the, the four first professors, faculty of the seminary. And how this is such an offense, and it's abuse to people like himself. And you know, this, uh, these these people uh, were guilty of such heinous crimes that there's no way we can ever be at peace with their names on buildings. And the names need to come down off the buildings. If you don't do that, then all you're doing is propping up white supremacy and perpetuating racism, and, and yada yada yada. It just goes on. It's coming from a worldview that is not biblical. It's coming from a worldview that I really think is irrational because if the crimes, somebody ought to do this, look at the crimes, look at the sins that Dwight lists in his open letter. And man, I mean, they're horrific the way he describes them. So just list them and then look at the proposed solutions. They're superficial. If it's as bad as he says, let's burn the buildings down. Let's get rid of Southern Seminary and remove its name from the annals of history. Let's hang James Boyce in effigy. Let's do away with his theology. Let's do away with his confessional convictions that a seminary ought to be true to its historic confession. And let's take uh, John Broadus's great book on preaching that has been used more than any other book on preaching in Protestant or evangelical Christianity, and let's burn it. Let's burn Boyce's abstract systematic theology, and let's not just get rid of the gavel. Man, let's remove John Broadus's name from Broadman Press or B&H now, uh, press. Let's let's go the whole nine yards. Don't give me this little minimal proposal over here for these high crimes that can never be uh, fully atoned for. All right, let's press on a little bit because you know they're going to come back and say, "Well, no, Tom, don't get all, don't get too Texan on me." I'm not going Texan. I'm trying to be rational. I I'm think to be that reasonable. James C. Boyce. What do you say, James C. Boyce? You know, he look. I'm not saying he wasn't a Christian. 
I'm just saying he's not a Christian. A lot of people are be. saying he's not a Christian. Well, let me let me hedge my bet and let me say, uh, I'm not saying he's not a Christian. I'm just saying that he shouldn't be on the library at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and his name shouldn't be a part of the college, a boys' college. You know, we need to put men up there that are worthy of being up there, and I'm just saying he's not. What do you say to that? Well, I'd say, why is he not worthy? Because he was a slaveholder. Well, that's not all that Dwight said. He's a white racist, white supremacist, denied the Imago Dei in right, people. Let's he's say he's a all heretic. that. Let's say he's all that. Okay. Well, if he's a heretic, he can't be a Christian. Why do we have a seminary based on a heretic? We need to say, man, we've been blinded. We've been wrong. Let's do away with this thing, uh, not just in uh, putting a coat of paint over the problem. Let's root it out. Because he's that bad. So it's not just the. So Dwight goes, does Dwight call him a heretic in the article? I don't think he actually uses the word heretic, but the the crimes that he accuses him of, all of them, are uh, are really bad. You know, he, and he says he tries to hedge. He says, you know, I appreciate we appreciate their role, their development in Southern, but it, it is inappropriate to mm-hmm. celebrate them. Inappropriate to uh, continue their legacy because let me just read this because of patriarchy, prejudice, the promotion of putrid exegesis practiced and preached by the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Their names need to be removed from the seminary as memorabilia, including Boyce College, Broadus Chapel, other places when the founders are displayed. If we got, if this seminary is based upon putrid exegesis, patriarchy that he thinks is bad, how are you defining it? Prejudice. What? Let, let's let's say, oops, sorry. Shouldn't trust them on that abstract if there was putrid no exegesis. No way. No so, way. I'm fascinated by the, we've talked a little bit about the tearing down of the statues and this. It seems to be what's going on with the social justice movement and what's probably tied up here with McKissick's effort as well is there's no category for honoring people who are sinners. Yeah. Now, the problem with that <laughs> is that we're not going to honor anybody. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you totally flatten out the world, which fits really the whole <laughs> critical theory is to try to get to this future state of, of, of total yeah. uh, utopianism, equality, like in, in every sense of the world word. Well, then there's definitely no statues because if you have a statue and I don't have a statue, I call that not equality. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's, it's fascinating. You know, you find, I think in one sense, it, Take slavery out of the issue. There's something deeper going on here. You would try to tear down. You would try to tear down statues, um, regardless of what sin was involved. You would go ahead and try to find one, and then you're going to try to tear down those statues because in this system, in this religion, this this faith commitment, there can be no honoring of certain persons, and without the honoring of the other persons, we want to get this this level everything out but that's not the way christianity works christianity has a has a place for saying look we're all fallen people uh, but there are commendable kinds of things and we want to commend certain things and we want to shame certain kinds of actions in this other uh, religious commitment there is no commending of certain qualities or shaming these other qualities it's like to each their own but the thing we can't do is have certain people exalted over other people yeah and again, you're just going to have to rewrite your Bible or rip out certain pages because we're told to give honor to whom honor is due. Oh, so is there some sinless person that's being uh, spoken of there that we are to show honor to? Of course not. I mean, Dwight refers to uh, Hebrews 11, but read through Hebrews 11 and, and find one sinless person there. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, look at Solomon. Look at David who are held up to us as teachers that we're to learn from, David, a type of Jesus Christ, and their sins are evident. And God doesn't paper over them. God puts them out there to be seen. That's the glory of the gospel. The the gospel provides real salvation for real sinners. And all of us have blind spots. All of us have sin that remains in us. And and these uh, virtue-signaling proponents of this new religion today that go around thinking we're greater than those who've gone before us because look at their sins, blinded to our own. I mean, it's, it's contrary to the way of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's my fear is that that's what the world is advocating now. And now we got people in the church going right along with it. And I, we cannot pretend that we're walking together whenever we're operating on two different bases of authority under the lordship of different gods. 
before we get into some proposed solutions, so we, we talk about these things frequently and we want to shepherd well during this time. And we're trying to identify certain doctrines, certain ideas that the church mm-hmm. really needs to focus on, maybe recover some of these, acknowledge ways that we have not taught clearly on certain topics. But before we do that, can you speak a little bit to the, we were talking earlier about you've lived through two great movements. Yeah. And I'd love to hear you spell out some more of that right now. Yeah, well, 1979, when the election of Adrian Rogers, I was a pastor in College Station, Texas, and a uh, brand new student at Southwestern Seminary and voted for Rogers. Uh, tried to work the best I could in the whole uh, recovery of the full, unashamed profession of authority in inerrancy of Scripture and was grateful for all that happened or the way that that resulted. It, you know, we, we came to a place in the convention and in broader evangelicalism where, you know, you just you don't hardly find anybody anymore who says, oh, yeah, the Bible's got errors and mistakes in it, which was not uncommon when I was starting seminary. It even had professors uh, that would uh, make those statements very guardedly. So praise God for the recovery of the full-throated affirmation of the Bible's infallibility and inerrancy. But early on in that movement, that's why founders came about, is early on there were a bunch of us that said, man, yeah, uh, inerrancy is, is absolutely necessary, but it's not enough. At some point, we're going to have to open up the inerrant Bible and say, what does it really say? What does it mean? And we were linking arms with people that we agreed on the authority of Scripture, but we disagreed with them on what the Bible actually says about fundamental truths that um, have been uh, expressed in good confessions of faith throughout history that we now use and have promoted at founders like the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. There are others, but that's the one that, that we've uh, promoted the most. And we need to recover the message of those confessions. Well, so in the wake of the inerrancy movement, where a younger generation was taught by the, these faithful lions, man, I mean, I praise God for the men that laid their ministerial lives on the line. They, I remember Adrian Rogers saying, look, God doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't have to be Southern Baptist. I said, but the Southern Baptist Convention needs God. I mean, I, I, I was in the room with him on a few occasions when he spoke to uh, some of the guys that were leading the movement, and he was humble, and he, he just impressed me as a man who basically said, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to follow what God says, and we're going to stand on this book, and it doesn't matter what happens. You know, I might win, might lose. doesn't matter. This is what I'm going to do. Praise God for that. Well, when all the debates about the authority of Scripture were happening, there, there was an explosion. I was a little bit a part of that in the 80s and then 90s of dissertations in Southern Baptist life dealing with Baptist history, Baptist theology. And so, I mean, that's what I wrote my dissertation. I was trying to go back and look at what Baptists actually said because both sides in the inerrancy debate were claiming Baptist heritage. You know, these Johnny-come-lately fundamentalists are trying to take over Baptist life, and it's not true. And these guys were saying, no, Baptists have believed this from the beginning, and you guys have hijacked uh, the Baptist identity. Tom Nettles, Russ Bush's book, Baptist in the Bible, was hugely instrumental in showing the forcefulness of this argument. This is a historic Baptist conviction. So with that, you know, we're being told the Bible is, it really is the Word of God. So you had a, young, a younger generation like myself coming up, start reading the Bible. So well, if this is inspired from God, we need to take it seriously. And so the whole movement of Calvinism began. People began to see that what our Baptist forefathers and our Protestant Reformed forefathers believed was really true about how God saves sinners. And so it wasn't just the gospel itself, but it's how the gospel works. That's really where I think the differences are between Calvinism and Arminianism. And a, a true Arminian can believe the gospel, but not understand the way we do how the gospel works. And I think the Calvinistic answer to that question is the best exegesis and exposition of Scripture. But that's an internal debate, mm-hmm. fraternal debate among brothers. So there was this young, restless reform movement, as it came to be called. And praise God for that. And more and more people began to identify as Calvinists and began to get tattoos and began to wear T-shirts. You know, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy and all this other stuff. And, you know, praise God for it. But what we've seen now in the aftermath, which some of us suspected all along, is that neither the inerrancy movement nor the young restless reform movement was very deep. So, so we trust the sovereign God. We know that God works according to means, and then He has the He's sovereign. He can work without means. He can work mm-hmm. against means, and all of that. So we know God is the one who's controlling all things and doing. Uh, so for his glory, for our good. But 
if 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 we're trying to watch Providence and see what's happening, if you tell me there's two great movements, there was a battle for inerrancy, which we all hear about in the Southern Baptist Convention, and we won. So now you, where all the mainline denominations are going left, you have mm-hmm. the Southern Baptists actually say, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. And then out of that, there's a significant uh, Calvinist movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you've done this for 30 plus years in Founders. Um, lots of people, you know, maybe the whole convention wasn't uh, committed to, you know, uh, um, Calvin's understanding of these things, but there was a big old group of them that were, and not only in the Young Restless and Reform Movement, there's also kind of an old guard Calvinism as well. <laughs> I wouldn't expect to see what's happened, I don't know, say over the last five, ten years with what, you know, and this question has been put to you a number of times. People said, Tom, what, you know, what happened? Like, this is inerrancy. That's good. Man, now they're coming to reformed understanding. That's good. I'm thinking things are kind of looking like they're going on the up and up, and all of a sudden they just fall off a cliff. I mean, it feels like we've talked about just falling off a cliff. So you say, well, yeah, it wasn't that deep. I hear that. But, and, and I know that we don't even have, crystal clear answers to this yet this yet maybe but how do we say okay are there things that we were missing are there doctrines that over the next five ten years we need to recover we need to emphasize we need Mm. to articulate in ways we haven't what what was it that we were missing that allowed the cliff to happen when we seem to be going on the up and up yeah well i want to say a couple of things about that one you know jonathan edwards has in uh, pilgrim's progress mr buy-ins Mr. Byens, he describes as loving to walk with religion when it walks in silver slippers. And I think that's what happened with a lot of guys in the Young Restless Reform Movement, is it became cool to be a Calvinist. And I'm not saying that they, you know, were duplicitous in their thinking, but it just like they were, you know, they were weekend Calvinists. You know, they started out as an Arminian on Friday, and Monday they wake up, they're a Calvinist. No, it's great, you know, I believe this. And they really haven't wrestled deeply with what the Bible says about these things. And so there's kind of a facile understanding you remember was it four years ago maybe five years ago founders uh, as we were trying to rethink reorient you remember we came up with three priorities Mm -hmm. that we said we need to emphasize pastoral theology was one confessionalism was the other and and by that we meant uh, understanding the value and the usefulness of confessions and arguing for their use as valuable documents to help us uh, understand and maintain biblical orthodoxy and the third was law and gospel and i i think you look at what's going on today if churches were straight on that if pastors understood what it is we're called to do we're called to defend god's people to defend the flock and man i i could tell story after story that has come to me uh, almost certainly weekly many times a week i get phone calls emails texts uh, messages from people that are talking about their churches being ripped apart being rocked by this social justice movement that's come in and the pastors are responsible to defend the flock and and a lot of them are ill-equipped to do so or they just hadn't recognized what was going on so that and, and then certainly confessionalism to understand help read the Bible. I mean, I'm not saying the confession stands over the Bible, but these are documents that have served the church well to express what the Bible says. Everybody has a confession. Everybody has a creed. It just needs to be carefully articulated. And these historic confessions can help do that. Uh, that's significant. And then law and gospel, man, that's huge. And you and I've talked, uh, there is an ethic in the new religion. There is an ethic. There is a, uh, a gospel in terms of a, a way of redemption in the new religion, but it is not the biblical gospel and it's not the biblical ethic that is based upon what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ as the gospel and what God has revealed to be his will in terms of justice and righteousness, which are not arbitrary, but actually come from the God who himself is just and righteous and therefore defines it. So as we were talking earlier, uh, several core doctrines the first is creation creation we've talked about this i don't know dozens of times that right now in this moment perhaps the most important verse in all the bibles genesis 1 1 god 
created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. We're creatures. This is God's show. He's the one that set it up. He's done it for his glory. Everything operates under his authority the way he's determined that it should operate. And we have got to take him at his word as he's revealed it to us in order to understand the best we can and to get in line with what he says. That's the only way we're going to live well in this world. Yeah, the doctrine of creation, it's it's really loaded. And I, maybe when some people hear it, they just think, okay, doctrine of creation. God I need to know. But it's loaded with implications because if God did create the world, I mean, the whole thing, then that means nowhere is off limits from him. So it doesn't matter if you're in Colorado, if you're in Florida. It doesn't matter if you're in a marriage or if you're not in a marriage. Physics, it doesn't matter if you're fighting math. a war. It doesn't matter if you're in a classroom. It doesn't matter if you're a president or a governor or a legislator. It's like everything's his and so there is this lordship of christ connection between a healthy doctrine of creation um that's one if, if god created the world and another truth is that that the creation is good yeah so god created and it was good and we know it's fallen genesis 3 is there but we start with creation itself is good the the body is good and we should think about that and in life in this world is good we were talking earlier about this um you know, I the, read a lot of the Puritans. I think the Puritans get a bad rap, too. They kind of, well, the Puritans were so heavenly minded. They were no earthly good. It's like, where do we get that idea? Yeah, I mean, yeah, these yeah. jokers were in the world, you know. Yeah. Like they were, um, but I, there's there's a tendency in maybe, you know, I don't know if it's the Young Restless Reform Movement, it's just evangelicalism in general, American Christianity, whatever, to have this, you know, heavenly, the, the, the heavenly is kind of, it's, it's what we live for. Yeah, I mean, and we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, but this relationship of understanding the, the goodness of the body and that to die, you know, you don't want to die, you know, because we're actually doing something here in the world that is significant. Yeah. And so um, immediately you get, you can't get a, you can't, um, you have to deal with eschatology if you're dealing with the God who created the world. So God created the world. Well, for what, what, what purpose did he do? Let, let me, let me interject real quickly here about death. You know, I, the, the secular mindset that is Godless sees death as natural and, and death is universal. I mean, we all experience it. So we see that it's inevitable. So we see that, but it's not natural mm-hmm. if we're thinking biblically, it's an invader. It's an intruder. Paul calls it the last enemy. So I don't know about you, man, but but I tell you, my, my stomach turns a little bit every time I hear about somebody who's died and it's all, we're going to have a celebration of life. We're going to come have a celebration of life. And I'm thinking if I know the person, you know, praise God for his life, but I'm grieved. I hate this. Mm-hmm. An enemy's done this, mm-hmm. you know, and yet it's almost like, oh no, that's not spiritual. And we're going to show how spiritual we are because we're not going to feel bad because this brother's died. We just think what he's getting in heaven. Well, all that is true, but Man, think in terms of what God has done in creating this world upright, and an enemy came in and has sown the seeds of death that now live in everybody, and it's going to result in everybody's death. Right. And then if you tie that tie that to an eschatology, and so I want to go to the place where, you know, we tie it to the Great Commission. If I make some Baptists feel more comfortable, if I talk about the Great Commission rather than eschatology, let's talk about Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. Amen. I've been thinking about that, you know. I don't think we, I just don't think we believe that Jesus really meant it. In what way? Uh, like he really gave us a commission. Like we have a job to do. Like think military. Like I'm going, I'm ascending to the father. Right. Here's what I want you to do. But what do you think the mission is? How, I do, want you, how do you articulate Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son, and the Holy spirit. So I want you to do that. I want you to execute that responsibility. Well, down here on earth, that that mission was, we were closer, how would I say it? You know, I could see that mission being on the up and up when R.C. Sproul was still around down here. What do you mean up and up? On the up and up, I mean, R.C. Sproul was a warrior, mm. was a warrior. And he was like faithful. And it's like, yes, if I got R.C. discipling, teaching, proclaiming, podcasting, whatever he's doing, this is good. It's good. You know, his family's good. Church is going to be good and, and world's going to be good. And we, I want to think in those kind of categories. So, right. I mean, you're here long track of faithfulness teaching. I'm like, good. We're making disciples. We're doing this work. And then when, when, when we lose our seat down here, praise God for, for mm. what he's, but I'm with you. I'm lamenting sure. over, over his death and I'm lamenting over, you know, 
troubles now we're in a real battle like yeah. in our in our generation in our time like he was providing all kinds of good stuff and so if we think that way now there is there's there's an earthly component to it we keep it heavenly it's all done by faith mm-hmm. not by human human will or exertion but god uses means and yeah. we're, we're dealing with that kind of reality i've been thinking about covid that way it's real interesting to me like if we live in cape coral and if if our job is like make disciples in Cape Coral, like make disciples of all nations, the way we deal with COVID restrictions is going to be radically different if we're thinking about like, yeah, there's 175,000 people here and we want to see them all come to the Lord Jesus Christ um, versus, well, I mean, we're here and that mission is not really central to my life and there's COVID restrictions. So, hey, Romans 13, Romans yeah. 13, we'll do. It's like, no, there's certain things I'm not going to be willing to do and because I actually have a mission from Jesus to right. accomplish on the earth. And my sense is, as I hear about a lot of churches and the way that they're operating right now, it's like they're, they've lost that eschatological vision, that Great Commission vision. They, they might say, well, no, we still have it. Maybe it's all missions-oriented for them, especially in the Baptist world. But it's fascinating. I mean, okay, take the Black Lives Matter riots. Who's more passionate about getting their message out? Right. The Black Lives Matter social justice warriors or the evangelical Christians? The evangelical Christians said, uh, the emperor said to, not to gather. We're not gathering. The Black Lives Matter people said, we have a mission. Mm-hmm. We have an eschatological vision of what's going to happen in the world. They're assembling. They're proclaiming. And I'm thinking that thing. It's like, yeah, Christians need to say, you know what? Like, we got a job to do too. And so, all due respect, but we've got marching orders from Christ. So, I do, I think there's something about the connection between creation and the the purpose and the goal of that creation from God and then our particular responsibilities as Christians in this world and how we should live. Yeah, I think you're dead on right with that, Jared. And uh, and I, I see it. We're Americans. We live in the United States. And I've, I've said it this way for a long time, but it is it is clear to me from a different angle than I've seen it before that the great problem with American Christianity is that it's more American than Christian. And so we, we live with this mentality of, oh, yeah, if the emperor says it or the governor says it or whatever, then the default is, oh, we got to do it, rather than remembering, no, we're sojourners. We're strangers here. We have a king, and we have a commission, and we belong to a kingdom. And so that kingdom is never going to fail. That kingdom is where our primary identity comes from. It's where we get our marching orders in terms of how we're to live. You and I as men in this world, as husbands in this world, as fathers in this world, as uh, whatever other relationships we have in this world, whatever other callings we have in this world, we look to King Jesus to see how we're to fulfill that. And with the uh, civil order as those things leave us alone, which again, as a Baptist, I think the highest we can get is a free church and a free state in the fallen world. And so just leave us alone, leave us alone, and we will do our work. We love to do it with quietness and gentleness so that we can uh, not have to engage in civil disturbance at all. But if we have to, we need to be pre-committed to our allegiance to Jesus as King trumps any kind of allegiance that we have to our American citizenship. Leave us alone, leave us alone. And we have these conversations sometimes, you and me. Mm-hmm. Do we have to leave them alone? We, yeah, we'll leave them alone. No. So, no, 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 no let me finish. I don't want to leave them alone. We're going to leave them alone and say, look, you're a servant of the king. You're a servant of Jesus Christ. You need to obey your king. I'm not going to go burn down their house. I'm not going to protest them. I'm just going to tell them, look, you can't have your brother's wife. Yeah, that's right. not leaving them. That, we're, we're good. Well, sure it is. I just want to be able to proclaim to them. I want to tell them. But here's the thing, you know, and this is you, you don't get this apart from Christianity. I mean, all these people think, oh, we need a different. No, you don't get the opportunity to speak freely and not have your head cut off unless you're operating out of a biblical ethic. Mm -hmm. And so biblically, I'm going to say, yeah, you know, you can have your goofy ideas and things I think are dead wrong, but I'm not going to kill you because you're a heretic. We're not going to do that. We understand as Baptists have paid a high price for this, that we will recognize in our society short of heaven, short of the new heavens and new earth, that uh, the, the sword belongs to the civil magistrate to execute and exercise judgment on disobedient citizens who mm-hmm. promote evil. The, the sword of the spirit belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. And so we can argue, we can proclaim, we can profess. And, and that's, you know, people today, what, what the problem today is, is, you know, speech is 
is violence or silence is violence. And so mm-hmm. words, you're kill, you're literally killing me. You know, how many times have we heard that from some snowflake? And, <laughs> I mean, it's true. Uh, it's true. And, and yet the scripture acknowledges, okay, you know, I can't coerce a man's will, but I can look him in the eye and say, friend, if you don't bow to King Jesus, you're going to go to an eternal hell and you're going to experience the judgment and wrath of God against you world without end and I don't want that for you and mm-hmm. there's a way of salvation for you and th- so we have those conversations so by leaving them alone I'm not talking about you don't speak to them not you don't remind them yeah but I'm not going to try to to go and coerce that right so so we're not going to go coerce it but we are going to go proclaim it and trust the God who gives new life by his spirit and sanctifies by his spirit to bring it about and I mean this is a conversation I'm really convinced that we need to have for the next 10 years but we're going to have to work out something with the foundations of our civil order and the Judeo-Christian principles that were there in the beginning that have arisen and how does it work and um, because as you said you know sort of the the sword for punishing the wrongdoer is given to the civil magistrate and what the church needs to be saying to that civil magistrate is you had that sword was given to you by someone mm-hmm. it was given mm-hmm. to you by god in the god of the bible yahweh not any other god and so you need to wield it the way Yahweh says to wield it. Yeah. And it's just that fundamental assertion that I know Christians, Christians believe, believe but we have not thought about it. Like we just, it's kind of, there's something, a lot of people have thought about it, but there's a lot of people that go, well, you know, it makes me nervous when we talk like that. But it's like, well, I mean, you don't get to bang on Romans 13 over and over and over again without saying you're God's <laughs> servant. You are God's servant. You are Yahweh's servant. You are Jesus Christ's servant. Yeah. He's given you the sword. You have to wield it the way he said to. You don't get to wield it the way he didn't say to. You yeah, have to I, do it according to his word. I, I think what makes people nervous, Jared, is, is that we've seen historically where those things have gotten out of kilter. And so, and even today, and even in my lifetime, you know, there, there are those that seem to think that this is the way you disciple the nations as you go to the magistrates and tell them that you have to implement these biblical laws. You have to do this in these ways or else, you know, that's the, the, you're, you're defying God and going not just beyond the moral character of what God's revealed to be right and wrong, but specific case laws as well. And so if we want to, if we want to see America become a Christian nation, then we need to see unbelievers become Christian. Born again. That's it. I mean, so the gospel has to remain front and center, but because we believe the gospel, we believe in the Lordship of Christ over every square inch of creation. So there's, there's nothing, as you said at the beginning, that's off limits. And so uh, magistrates are servants of God. The sword's been put in their hands by God. And we need to be willing to say that. We need to say to police officers, look, you you must not brutalize the people that you're called to defend and serve. Mm-hmm. We need to say to governors, look, you have a responsibility to promote what is good and to punish what is evil. And they have a lane. Everybody has a lane that God's created us to live within. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we have been given the, the stewardship of the oracles of God. Right. The word of God's been dep- deposited into us. And so we're the ones responsible to, to proclaim what is in terms of reality, in terms of morality, in terms of purpose and end game and the truth about God and the truth about creation. Right. And going back to, you know, if we're going to see these things happen, they, then you must be born again. You need a regenerate people right. in order to get faith and obedience to, to Christ. And, but you also need uh, people to be sanctified. You need them to go through the sanctification sure. process. And we have many people there. We have many civil magistrates all across our land that are born again, but they're not very sanctified. And how are you going to get sanctified? Well, you're going to get sanctified as a Christ's people disciple the nations, as you tell people to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever you're doing, whether you're a plumber or whether you're a legislator, you need to obey mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Great Commission is all about. And there is this great temptation to try to have it like a top-down kind of thing. And so there is this truth of, of trusting God's promises. So this is all going to be done by faith. It's all got to be done by the power of the Spirit. And for the church, it's got to be done in, in an appropriate order. So, you know, make your own bed first. Care for your own right. self. Make sure you're trusting the Lord. Exactly. It's so easy to get involved in, like, federal politics. But start start there and then look at your home and yeah. then engage your church. And then part of this is realizing it's it's bubbling up to the fully civic realm now because we have been neglecting them not only right. there but all the way back down to our very own hearts. Amen. So it's going to have to be – it's going to have to come from the spirit – 
Um, but as these new ideas come in, what I want to encourage the church to do is is remember that Jesus Christ really is Lord. And it goes all the way back to creation. All things have been created. They've been created by God. And if you get that, you know, a lot of things are going to unfold. So uh, we've mentioned a number of things. Maybe one more before we sign off here. We've talked... We came up with four categories, at least for now, and these are all fresh, and I think they need to be worked out. But there's creation. We need a recovery of that doctrine and thinking about it. We talked about law uh, a good bit. We could talk about it so much more. God's law in relation to gospel, um, how that relates to individual lives, how that relates to the church, how that relates in the civic realm. We talked about eschatology. And so why we're here on earth and the kinds of things we're laboring for related to the Great Commission. But uh, a fourth one is just reality itself. Mm. What is real? And a part of uh, going all the way back to Marx, being a materialist, the only things that exist are things in the world. And then go to kind of American pragmatism with Dewey and um, James. You got the same kind of ideas here. And it's so easy for us to buy into that. So we've mentioned with, you know, I said... We, we, need to re, we need to be willing to talk in categories that say, in the Bible, it was the angel. It was God who stopped the plague because mm-hmm. he told the angel to stop killing people. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, and, and it's so simple. It's like, I'm a Christian. I'm yeah. a Christian. And so that doesn't mean, you know, vaccines are all bad. I'm going to chunk out all the vaccines. No, 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 no. I, I like both the spiritual things God's created and the physical things God has created. But... America is so focused yeah. on these physical things that we really don't think like we could ask God to maybe have the angel not kill anybody else. Like, God, can you show mercy here? And that is actually a good endeavor as the people are working on the vaccinations. And that could be applied to a whole host of things. Sure. But getting Christians to think again about the nature of what is, and that yeah. includes both the physical realm and it includes the spiritual realm and it includes words like what is love Mm -hmm. what is justice what is truth what is mercy Uh, because there is a hijacking of all of those things probably a materializing where it's all just material physical yeah and so it's easily they're easily set up to be hijacked because it's not grounded in this understanding of reality as, as the bible defines it so yeah i mean praise god for doctors and medicine and, and praise God for food that he gives us daily. You know, most Christians will thank the Lord or ask the blessing on the food. But we need to stop and consider, what is it that we're saying? Lord, pl- Lord please bless this food. Even the, the typical, to strengthen and nourish our bodies. You know, that's the way I grew up learning it. Well, amen. I can eat the most nutritious food in the world. If God doesn't bless it to my strength and nourishment, it's going to do me zero good. Mm-hmm. And we need to recover that and believe that so that we just don't go through these ritualistic words uh, without understanding. No, it's true. You go get a vaccine vaccine from the doctor. God, make this vaccine work. You have surgery. Lord, help the surgeon to use all the skills you've given him and make the surgery work. God's the one who does that. If you can't get to a doctor, you don't have surgery. You don't have medicine. It's the same God. Yeah. God, help me. I can't get to a doctor. We've just lost yes. that that two world view exactly, and exactly, and it becomes it becomes amazing to live. This is I, I do like uh, Chesterton's orthodoxy, and I was Roman Catholic, but he 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 helped me with some of these things, you know, because then the beauty becomes like we're like Tom. We know we're modern people. If I drink a cup of coffee, I'm going to feel a little, a little bit you know, more energetic because it's got caffeine in it. And the beauty is that God does that every time you drink coffee. It's yeah. amazing. It's like. God did it again. You should be like overwhelmed. I drank that coffee again and it did. You know, it's like you get a good night's sleep, you feel better. It's like God did it again. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just the night's sleep or it's not just the coffee or right. a million other things in life. And so when your world really starts to open up like that, it's amazing. You start to see the miracles of God. Like God's making the microphone work right now. This yeah. is amazing. He did it again. I yeah. mean, and, and that understanding reality helps us to embrace and rejoice and celebrate creation without worshiping it. Mm -hmm. So I can look at a sunset and be blown away, which we get marvelous sunsets here in Southwest Florida and not worship the sun God. I can worship the God who gives those sunsets, who paints those sunsets. I can look at any aspect of creation and be blown away and let myself feel deeply. I mean, mountains do this to me. You know, when I see mountains and I get to be in the mountains, there's just something regenerating in, in, in my inner being in, in that kind of context and environment 
but I'm not worshiping the mountain. God, thank you for mountains. I, I love the mountains. Jay Grace from Machen wrote an, uh, an essay on that, mountains and why we love mm-hmm. them. You know, and I, it's, it's, it, it just resonates with this understanding. So, yeah, we got to get creation right. we got to get reality right. And as we do that and read our Bibles accurately and remember that there is a God in heaven, there are spiritual beings, there are good ones and there are evil ones, and they're active in the world that God created. And God gives us sleep. He gives us coffee. He gives us food. He gives us medicine, but they're gifts from him. And they will only do us good to the degree that he blesses them to us. And he does that so often, so regularly, we begin to presume upon his blessing and we start worshiping the creature rather than the creator valuing the gifts more than the giver well this whole podcast has been a little bit of like showing you how the sausage gets made (laughs) we just decided to get into um identifying this uh, error that we see really in every direction more and more and then trying to poke around at solutions as we labor forth so i guess if you're a you know if you're going to write your dissertation if you're going to write your phd dissertation at any faithful seminary we say go after creation or go after reality go after law go after eschatology if you ask us we think those would be some good topics and by god's grace we'll examine uh those doctrines maybe others that will get added as the church seeks to remain faithful in the crazy times in which we live. So if you want to dig into more of this, hey, by what standard? This uh, will go a little bit deeper along what we've talked about today. And uh, yeah, let me tell you, you know, there, there are a lot of pastors that tell us they they uh, listen to our podcast. And I'm, I'm always humbled and blown away when anybody tells me they listen to it. But a lot of pastors do. But a lot of folks that are not pastors and they're in good churches and some who are looking for good churches uh, watch this. Let me encourage that if you're not a pastor, would you consider getting one of these books and giving it to your pastor or a pastor? Uh, if you can help a pastor who, I can tell you, as pastors, and we struggle with this stuff. I mean, we have to think about this a lot. It's exhausting. And we're in a context that's been thinking about it a while. And so we might be a little bit ahead of the curve with some others. But this book will help pastors. So if you are not a pastor and you love a pastor, then I encourage you to get this book and pass it on to him as an expression of love. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel.